0: You're listening to Biblical Proportions. Our website is www.biblicalproportionspodcast.com. In that list of good guy versus bad guy battles of all time, the story we'll talk about in this episode is definitely on there. Even if you aren't that familiar with your Bible, you've heard of the story of David and Goliath. David versus Goliath, a phrase in our everyday culture that has become synonymous with a huge underdog going up against some heavyweight opponent. You know, wow, that team was such a huge underdog. I can't believe they won. Yeah, a true David versus Goliath story. In the story of David and Goliath, was David really an underdog, though? Maybe on paper, but there's more to the story than just the paper when God is involved. And that's exactly what we find in the story. In the Bible, it is portrayed, whether we realize it or not, as much more than just a scrawny little guy fighting a big, huge giant. There are spiritual, evil undercurrents at play, especially concerning Goliath. What we will find, I hope, is that more than just a cute little underdog story, David's battle with Goliath has cosmic, spiritual significance. There's also a lot of neat historical context type of information involved, which is what I really love. So sit back, relax, and learn some new things about your Bible. I hope you enjoy this presentation of Biblical Proportions. This is the story of David and Goliath. According to 1 Samuel 17, verse 1, the Philistines gather their armies together to do battle against Saul's Israelite forces. As the Philistines are making their incursion into Israelite territory, something they've been known to do from time to time, Saul moves to meet the Philistines in battle, trying to keep two major east-west highways in Judah's hill country out of their hands. Saul positions his army to defend a major pass called the Valley of Elah. It's about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Though Jerusalem, it isn't an Israelite city yet, not what we have um, come to know it as. And it will be here in this valley that one of the most famous good versus evil scenes in all of the Bible, and I would argue even all of human history will play out. The Philistine-Israelite conflict here really centered around control of what is called the Inner Shephalah. Without getting too much into the geography of the Holy Land, though some people like me might geek out on that stuff, this is a region of soft, sloping hills just west of Jerusalem. And though, as I've said, Jerusalem is not yet an Israelite city, it's still in the hands of a people called the Jebusites, I use it as sort of a common point that we've all heard of, and if you are prone to pull out a map, as I am, talking about geography, um, you'd be able to easily locate Jerusalem, so I just use it as an easy point of reference for us. The Philistines have control over um, the, the coastal plain area right along the Mediterranean coast. As you move inland the terrain starts to slope into rolling hills, that's the Shephelah that I mentioned earlier, and then transitions to the hill country of Judah, where Jerusalem is is located. The Philistines are looking to quash the growth of the Israelite kingdom, which seems to be finally unifying under their first ever king, Saul. In order to do this, they begin infiltrating Judah's territory until the two armies meet at the Valley of Elah, Both armies set up a defensive line on either side of the valley. This was a classic ancient warfare tactic where two sides positioned themselves on opposite ridgelines of a valley. Neither force would, would want to give up the high ground by advancing through the valley to meet the enemy. This, of course, was not the first time the Israelites and Philistines had met on the field of battle, Our story here in 1 Samuel 17 was but one incident in a long history of conflict really dating back to Israel's first entrance into the land after their exodus from Egypt and subsequent 40 years of wilderness wandering. The first time that the reader of the Bible is fully introduced to the Philistines is with the story of Samson. His infamous lover, Delilah, is probably a Philistine, though the text is never very clear on that. And it is with these Philistines that Samson is constantly clashing. Various Philistine-Israelite encounters occur during the Judges' period, early in First Samuel. They actually steal the Ark of the Covenant, only to give it back after God sends harsh judgment against them. Samuel will also defeat them in battle a few years before our story here, So it's safe to say the Philistines had been a thorn in the side of God's people for centuries at this point. But who were these Philistines? The name Palestine, which we've all heard of before, was the name of uh, this area, um, the area of Israel, um, going all the way back to the Greek historian Herodotus in the 5th century BC, who was the first person to use the term. The term comes from the word Philistines. One of the things I find most fascinating is placing biblical stories, people, or groups of people within their historical context. In other words, realizing that a group like the Philistines were real people with their own customs, beliefs, and way of life. We tend to think of them as simply supporting actors in the biblical narrative, and they certainly are that. But these are real people in a real place, at a real time. They have an origin, just like the Israelites do, who are from their forefather Abraham, who came from Mesopotamia. However, the origin of the Philistines isn't as clear. They weren't always in the land of Canaan. And and, and to be clear here, I, I know I'm throwing around a lot of names, a lot of different terms. Really, all of these terms are, are names for the same piece of real estate. Um, I, as I have said before, this land is called the this is called Palestine before that it was called the kingdom of Israel and before that it was known as Canaan so don't get confused these are really just all um, different names for the same place you know it as that the place you're probably thinking of it as as Israel and from archaeological data it appears that the Philistines Entered into this land, the land of Canaan, sometime in the first half of the 12th century BC, and either destroyed or took advantage of destruction that had already happened to several cities in the coastal plain of Canaan, moving in and building their own cities right on top of the ruins. The five cities in Canaan that became the major Philistine hubs were Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, Gath, Gaza. Identifying where the Philistines came from, though, is where things get a bit murky. Right around this time period that we're talking about, one era of human history has just come to an end, while another has begun. The era that ended was called the Bronze Age. And, of course, Um, The the people of the time didn't know that they were living in the Bronze Age or that the Bronze Age was ending in a new age that we refer to as the Iron Ages starting. Uh, They didn't know all that. It's just terms we give for different ages or eras today. Um, But the end of the Bronze Age, as we call it, in the ancient Near East, happened when several pretty complex civilizations came crashing to a halt all around the same time. Now, why these several major civilizations collapsed basically all at once has been really difficult for historians and archaeologists to understand. One of the underlying factors, though, believed by some to be THE factor for the collapse of these civilizations in the ancient Near East, which ushered in the end of the Bronze Age, was what is called the Invasion of the Sea Peoples, C spelled S-E-A. In the late 13th and early 12th centuries BC, these sea people began migrating into or possibly invading areas along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, places like Canaan, Phoenicia, Syria, and even Egypt. They are called the Sea People because this is just a mass of migrating or invading, depends on how you look at it, people that are made up of different people groups they came from somewhere to the west of the shores of Canaan, though no one is really sure where exactly. Most likely they came from um, places like the Aegean Islands near Greece, or perhaps Greece itself, or even western Anatolia, which is just another name for modern-day Turkey. And that they were probably pushed out of their homes and forced to move eastward because of what I saw one scholar term a, quote, profound cultural crisis, whatever that was. Again, this is all kind of murky because historians just don't have all the information. They are best known, these sea people anyway, in the history records from an Egyptian inscription left to us on the walls of a mortuary temple near the Valley of Kings by Ramses III. In this inscription, Ramses describes the terror inflicted on the eastern Mediterranean world, including some places under Egyptian control, by what he calls, quote, foreigners from the sea. That's where we get the term sea peoples from. It is in this inscription that we also learn the names of these confederated people groups, if you can call them confederated, or at least what these different groups were called in the ancient world. The names that Ramses III gives for these groups were, and I hope I'm pronouncing them right, they were the Denuna, the Jecker, the Shekelesh, the Weshesh, and the Pelaset. Most of these people groups are hard for historians to identify, except for one. Most scholars are in agreement that the people identified as the Philistine are none other than the Philistines. So the Philistines were one of these invading groups of sea peoples who moved into the coastal region of Canaan really only a few centuries before the story of David and Goliath takes place. But from where exactly did they come? Again, all these sea people groups are are moving from the west to the east coming Possibly from places like Greece, the Aegean Islands, um, you know, maybe even Sicily, Sardinia, Italy, um, Western Anatolia, as I said earlier. But when it comes to the Philistines or the Pelicet, most folks think they came from the island of Crete. Crete probably went by the name Cafftor in the ancient ancient world. And Kaftor is mentioned in association with the Philistines in both Amos 9.7 and Jeremiah 47.4. So Crete is really the most likely candidate. Another theory I've heard for where the Philistines came from is that they were actually the famous Mycenaeans from the Greek mainland. If you know anything about history, especially um, Greek history, you've, you've heard that term before. The Mycenaeans were an incredibly advanced early Greek civilization that famously disappears at the end of the Bronze Age, really right before the time period in which this story of David and Goliath takes place. It was these Mycenaean Greeks that Homer had besieging the walled city of Troy in the famous story, the Iliad. These are the people responsible for the Trojan horse, if the story is real anyway, Perhaps as the Mycenaean civilization collapses, again, we we aren't really sure why it collapses, but perhaps when it does, many of the Mycenaean people set out for new lands, finding their way to the coast of Canaan, only to become the primary foe of the Israelites in the Old Testament historical books. There are some other interesting connections between these Mycenaeans and Goliath, actually, that will be explored later, which kind of lends some credibility to the idea that the Philistines were the Mycenaeans. This theory might not be an accurate one to describe where the Philistines came from, but I kind of like the idea that the Philistines that the Israelites are fighting against are the same Greeks of Trojan War fame. Wherever they are truly from, the Philistines come to be in Canaan, trying to coexist with the Israelites, but not succeeding. They're constantly trying to move inland from their coastal cities into Israelite territory which is why the two armies are facing off on separate ridgelines of the Valley of Elah. Neither side wants to make the first move, so they decided, or at least the Philistines decided, to settle the conflict with what turns out was a pretty common ancient way. One-on-one duel instead of all-out battle. Apparently ancient armies thought it was better to risk the life of one man in one-on-one combat than to rest the entire army. It makes some logical sense. The Philistines choose, according to the first Samuel 17 4 quote, a champion named Goliath of Gath. Now, the couple of Hebrew words translated champion here are interesting. The original Hebrew phrase literally means a man of the in-between, or a man in-between, meaning that he is the man, the Philistine champion, who fights between the battle lines just as he's proposing to do here. It is not clear whether he was an actual Philistine or just a mercenary they had hired, which was pretty common back in those days. The name Goliath would have been a foreign name to the Israelites as possibly any Philistine name would have been, His name is not Semitic, meaning that it it isn't in the same language family as Hebrew. The term Semite or Semitic literally means coming from the line of Shem, one of the sons of Noah. So a uh, Semitic language comes from that same uh, family tree as as Shem. Some scholars think that the name Goliath could have been Lydian, which was a region In Anatolia, again, that's modern-day Turkey, and could have been one of those areas from which the Philistines, one of the Sea People groups, actually came. Now, I love archaeology, I guess ever since falling in love with the Indiana Jones movies as a kid, and I find it especially intriguing when pieces of archaeological evidence are found which corroborate the biblical narrative. At the Philistine city of Gath, which, remember, was where Goliath was from, archaeologists have found a pottery shard dating exactly to the time period of King David that has the name Goliath written on it. Now, scholars don't think it has any connection to the actual biblical Goliath, but what this confirms is that at least this was a real personal name in use by the Philistines at exactly the same time period of the biblical account. In other words, we know that Goliath was a real name, in use during exactly this time period, not just something made up by the biblical writer. It lends even more validity to the biblical account, though I still like to think of this inscription as referring to the actual Goliath of our story. I think that'd be pretty cool, and who knows, maybe it's possible. But the most spectacular thing about this guy, what makes him famous, we all know it, he was a giant. First Samuel 17 tells us that he was six cubits and a span tall. There is a bit of debate here. Later Greek commentators, um, the Septuagint, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian writing in the first century AD, I've used his Um, stuff on previous podcasts, Um, and uh, the version of the book of Samuel that's found in the Dead Sea Scrolls all put Goliath's height a little shorter, at four cubits and a span, instead of six cubits. You're probably wondering the obvious question, though, how long or, or how tall is a cubit or a span? A cubit was basically just the measurement from a man's elbow to the tip of his middle finger. An average of about 17 to 18 inches. Now, I was curious and decided to measure my own elbow to the tip of my middle finger length on both arms. It was about 18 and a half inches, and I'm not a particularly large man. My wife's cubit measurement was 15 inches for what it's worth. I'm not sure how this worked in the ancient world. Obviously, everybody would have had different lengths from elbow to fingertip. I wonder if they just sort of standardized it at one point and said, okay, let's just call it 18 inches, and that became what the cubit was. It was about 18 inches. A span, remember, Goliath was six cubits, and a span was the length between the tip of your fully extended thumb to the tip of your pinky finger. So the span was about eight inches. If you've already done the math in your head... Coming in at six cubits in a span, Goliath would have been nine and a half feet tall. Certainly a giant. Even by the low measurement of four cubits in a span, he is still probably at least six and a half feet tall. If we go with the measurement found in our Bibles today of six cubits in a span or nine, nine feet, six inches, he would have towered over the average Israelite who would have maybe been five, six or something like that. A terrifying sight, to say the least. But this wasn't the first time the Israelites had faced a giant. Right after the exodus from Egypt, the ancestors of these very Israelites, camped on the battlefield at Elah, were marching toward the land God had been promising them, the land of Canaan. You might remember the story of the twelve spies from Numbers 13 The Israelites are camped on the outskirts of Canaan, poised to take it from the south, and Moses sends 12 men to spy out the land before the conquest can begin. The report they bring back is infamous. It shows a lack of faith in God, and it is the reason why they have to endure 40 years of wilderness wandering before they get to march into Canaan to make it their home. 10 of the 12 men come back and inform the Israelite people in Numbers 13, verses 32 and 33, quote, All the people that we saw in the land are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Enoch, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. End quote. So they saw giants, the sons of Enoch, called elsewhere Anakim, who were descendants of the Nephilim. This passage is also not the first mention of giants in the Old Testament either. The Nephilim mentioned at the end of the Numbers passage I just quoted are from Genesis chapter six. In Genesis six, verses one through four, we read a bizarre story where heavenly beings called the sons of God came to earth, had children with human women, and produced an offspring of half-human, half-heavenly, supernatural, divine beings, whatever you want to call them. And this offspring was called, according to Genesis chapter 6, the Nephilim. And they just so happened to be giants. Now, if you think that sounds weird, that's because it is. If this is something you've never heard before, and you don't believe it, well, I don't blame you. But go back and read Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4, and you'll see what I mean. And while you're at it, you can go back and listen to my previous episodes. I have two of them called The Sons of God, where I discuss this topic at length. And I do mean at length. And that's where it gets really weird. Nonetheless, It was the giant descendants of these Nephilim that scared the spies, at least 10 of the 12 spies anyway, enough to proclaim that there was no way they could take the promised land. Forty years later, the next generation will indeed conquer the promised land and in the process encounter a bevy of these giant Nephilim descendants. The family tree of these descendants is complicated and really not understood very well, mainly because we find some uh, mixing and conflating of names in the biblical text. They are called, as we've mentioned, Anakim, descendants of Anak, Joshua. 11 tells us that the Anakim were expelled from Hebron during the conquest and that the remnant of these giant Anakim settled in Gath, among other places in Philistine territory. Gath was, of course, Goliath's hometown. 2 Samuel 20 tells us that, no surprise, Goliath was a descendant of these Gath giants, which means he was almost certainly of Anakim descent. In a fascinating little piece of historical data, the Bible is not the only ancient text to mention the Anakim. The other being an Egyptian, Execration text from around 2000 BC, so that's about a thousand years before our story here. These giants seem to be called different names in the Old Testament in different places. Maybe they are different tribes of giant Nephilim descendants, or maybe the same group just gets called different names by different people. For instance, the well known giant kings Og whose bed was apparently about 13 feet in length, and Sihon were the, the first to feel the wrath of Yahweh and the occupying Israelites at the beginning of the conquest. They were also called Amorites, and just listen to the way these Amorites are described in Amos chapter 2, verse 9, where it says, and, and this is God speaking, quote, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. End quote. In Deuteronomy, we find a few different names of previous giant clans in the land of Canaan. The Moabites, who were descended from Lot, Abraham's nephew. Um, they they were, were not descendants of the Nephilim, but they knew of these giants. They called them the Emim, while the Ammonites, Esau's descendants, knew them as the Zemzumim. To make things more confusing, Goliath, though we know him so far to be a descendant of the Anakim, who settled in Gath a few a few centuries before him, he's also called in First Chronicles a Rephaim. Elsewhere in the Old Testament the Anakim are also referred to as Rephaim. So if you're already confused with all of the names, that's okay. Um, what we really find in what seems on the surface to be you know, a muddled mess of names and tribes is that all of these giants and all of these giant tribes appear to be given the blanket title Rephaim. That is the way it appears to work itself out in the Old Testament anyway. They all go by different names to different people, but at the end of the day, the Old Testament writers refer to them all, and by all, I mean all of these Nephilim descendants, as the Rephaim. Now, Rephaim is an interesting word. While it is used to describe these giants who descended from the Nephilim, it also seems to mean something like spirits of the dead in the underworld. It is sort of used to describe not just the giants on Earth, but also spirits in the underworld. There's some sort of linkage there. It is used in that context in a number of places, but these spirit rephaim that are spoken of also seem to be more than just mere um, human spirits, or, 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 you know, spirits of the human dead. They are more akin to some sort of semi-divine creatures, most notably in Isaiah 14.9, as well as in one extra-biblical text from the city of Ugarit. So, yes, this word, Rephaim, is also used outside of the Bible, which just helps us as modern readers to gather more context into how the ancients actually used this word. So, Rephaim seems to have this dual meaning, both as a proper name for these giants but also as semi-divine, supernatural powers of the underworld who are hostile to Yahweh's people, the Israelites. The writers of the Old Testament clearly seem to be connecting these giants roaming the earth to evil spirits of the underworld. All this to say that there is, as I hinted at in the introduction, much more going on in the conquest narrative and in our story of David and Goliath than just a battle against really tall people. They are seen by the biblical writers and I think the Israelites as well as not just tall giants but some sort of supernatural evil force. There is a connection made to the supernaturally evil events of Genesis chapter 6 I mentioned earlier. The Israelites, David included, aren't just fighting against really tall people, they are fighting against supernatural evil. So, just as with the conquest of the Israelites over the pagan nations of Canaan, this story of David's triumph over Goliath takes on spiritual and cosmic importance. Interestingly, though, Goliath is one of the only Old Testament giants we think of, Second Samuel also speaks of other giants living in Gath at the time of Goliath. Four in, in total, I believe. Apparently, Goliath has a brother named Lami, according to 1 Chronicles 20. So, there is still some sort of remnant in the land during David's time. It, it isn't just Goliath. We also learn some interesting details about the Gath giants from um, 2 Samuel 20, forgive me if I'm skipping around to a lot of Bible verses, you don't have to look them up, you can if you want to, it might help. i um, just trying to give some some reference points here, but will you learn from Second Samuel 20, for example, that one of these giants in Gath had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot? I know that, that sounds bizarre, really. And I once heard a thought about this six fingers and toes business that has to be complete conjecture, but if you know me, you know that I can't resist a little bit of odd conjecture. Um, But I once heard a man who was teaching on this very topic who explained that this was, the six fingers and six toes thing, was the reason that the Native Americans would greet strangers with their typical how- greeting, um, you know, where they uh, hold up their hand, they were showing, according to this guy, they were showing the newcomer and checking to see that the newcomer only had five fingers instead of six. They were making sure that they weren't welcoming um, someone that might have any of that Nephilim uh, or giant blood in them. Now, I find it hard to believe um, that that is the actual reason for any Native American greeting, but... I bring it up not just because it's weird and it's a little interesting, but really to show just how sort of um, ubiquitous this giant mythos becomes around the world. You know, if you think this is just either in the Bible or in fairy tales, then you're dead wrong. These stories about and belief in giants are found all over the world in just about every civilization. Yes, even the Native Americans though that doesn't necessarily mean that the greeting anecdote is true. And not only do most ancient civilizations have stories about giants, but they have a common origin story for them as well, which all line up pretty well with the Genesis chapter 6 story about these heavenly divine beings having children with women. What we'll see as we continue our story in the next episode And it might feel like we haven't done much covering of the actual story yet. We will get there. But we will explore the depth of connection between the giants of the Old Testament, particularly Goliath, to other civilizations in the ancient world, particularly that of ancient Greece. We will look at our main character, David, and give maybe more of a detailed summary of the main event than most of us have heard so many times before. Thanks for listening to Biblical Proportions. If you haven't already, go ahead and click subscribe on the podcast and download the episodes because that helps us know who's listening. Also, make sure you go to our website, www.biblicalproportionspodcast.com to check out the sources used for each episode under the Sources tab. Finally, if you think what we're doing here is worthwhile, then we sure would appreciate your support. On the website, there's a place where you can give your support to what we're doing at Biblical Proportions and assist us in continuing to put out content like what you just listened to. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.